Well, as we come to the preaching of the word this morning, uh, Sparky has asked that we look at um, Acts 16, verses 9 through 40. And it's a rather lengthy chapter this morning, but uh, I was reminded of when Ezra was reading the law to the children of Israel after they came back from exile. And it says they started early in the morning and he read it till midday. So I guess we can handle it. So if you'd stand in honor of the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our cities. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted inflicted many blows upon them, They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates said to the, sent to the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they and they came and took them out and asked them to. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your good word to us. Father, thank you for the examples of the believers uh, in the past that we have seen recorded in your word. And Father, would you give us that boldness and courage that Paul and Silas uh, were shown in the prison? Father, I pray now uh, that you would open the word to us and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. It is good to see you all here, and it's good to come and meet you. I, uh, when I was walking in this morning, I had a wonderful welcome from one of your deacons who will remain anonymous. Uh, he, I asked him, is this, is this the Presbyterian church that is supposed to be having a pastor from all saints come and speak? And he said, no. I thought, well, I'd wondered about that because I thought it was Evergreen Presbyterian, but I saw Evergreen Community Church uh, and on the websites and everything. I just wasn't sure. And so I asked Levi Bakerink to send me directions and he sent me here. So it's Levi's fault. And then he, he quickly backpedaled and said, well, this is the place, this is the place. You need to be careful about the officers that you choose for your church. And um, maybe our session can help you with some of that. I don't know. I, I want to take, you know, I, I want to be uh, a lot like Paul, but I don't want to preach till midnight and, uh, and sing and pray till midnight tonight. I don't think you want that either. And uh, so I've got a long passage, but I do want just to say a couple of words that uh, I bring you greetings from All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church and Dennis Bullock, our pastor, and the entire session. You have been on our hearts. You have been in our prayers uh, weekly and daily in many cases that God would be with you and uh, bless you and encourage your hearts 
uh, during this time of transition. And so uh, we are there for you, and it's a great joy for us to be able to serve you. Uh, I've been a member there for, well, we've been attending there for about eight years. We've been members there for better than three years. And when we walked in, someone said, where's your wife? And that's usually the case. You know, you, you, know, you don't give us what we need. Where's your wife? And um, so my wife of 49 years is at the church this morning, and she plays the piano for the church. And uh, so that is where she is, and she'd rather be here, frankly. Uh, not that she likes to hear me preach, but she likes to meet people and God's people. So uh, we're glad to be here. I'm glad to be here with you today. And I trust that I can be a blessing and encouragement to you from God's Word on this day. Uh, I have been in pastoral ministry for over 45 years, um, then re- retired from the ministry, and uh, needed, needed to do that, needed to be refreshed and renewed after preaching three times a week, every week, and um, for all those years, and then many other things. So now I do this for fun, rather than as a job or ministry. I have also appreciated getting to see some people who were at Emmanuel in uh, in downtown Richmond when I was pastoring there for uh, 24 years, and it's always good to renew friendships and see people that you know. So I feel a little, little bit like home in the Eastwoods. I know them very well and their family, and I'm uh, married one of the family members off uh, at the church down there, and I know many of the family members in that way, and I probably know a lot of the others of you, but uh, I just want to thank you for coming here to worship God this morning, and I trust this will be a wonderful day for us. Anytime we're in the Word of God, it's going to be a wonderful day. Now, I do suspect that the area supplied for preaching notes is a little tiny for what I'm about to give you. Uh, Sometimes people say that I'm more like a fire hydrant when I'm putting out the sermon, and so I hope I don't overwhelm you with this, but we have a wonderful uh, passage for us to begin a series on Philippians. And so let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask God to bless us as we look into this. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word, hear your word, and may today as we hear your word, we want to live your word. We thank you that you have called us in the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And I pray in these moments that you will give me wisdom and grace And may your spirit and your word speak through me, because I have nothing to say on my own. So bless us now as we hear what God's word has to say to us as we begin this wonderful book. May it bring joy, may it bring unity, may it bring challenge to your people to live worthy of the gospel by which we were called, and in the name of The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we now pray. Amen. And I want you to turn your Bibles again. Put a marker in Acts chapter 9. That's where we're coming back. But I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. 
Let's read the opening words here. I want you to listen carefully, and I want you to do more than listen. I want you to feel Paul's emotions. I want you to connect with what he is going through as he writes this. Philippians 1. I'll read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. By the way, don't you like the you all? Paul was a southerner. That I feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me in grace of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thanks be to God for his word, thus far the reading of God's word. Now, as we read those opening lines of Paul's letter, we sense the warmth, the affection, the humility, the gratitude that Paul is feeling and expresses for that assembly of believers at Philippi. Paul is exposing his heart. He says so here with expressions of love for God's people as well as for showing his love for the Lord and for the gospel. By the way, the word gospel will appear nine times in the book of Philippians. The gospel is the foundation of it all. There's a strong relationship that is evident between Paul and these believers. Paul even mentions that they are in partnership. He mentions it here at the start. He will say it again in chapter 4, talking about the partnership, the fellowship that they have in the gospel from day one. So Paul remembers that first encounter with them. And so to see what lies behind these words he's writing here in Philippians, and what Paul feels in his heart, we have to go back and discover how this church came to be. Where was the foundation? How was it laid? And so we go back to the book of Acts chapter 16. Now turn back there in your Bible, please. And beginning in verse 9, we find ourselves as Paul is on his second missionary journey. Now during Paul's first missionary outreach, he had focused his energies in spreading the gospel in the familiar territory of Asia Minor. If you, if you go to the back of your Bible and look at a map of Paul's journeys, you can see there some of the places that are being spoken of here. And Asia Minor 
was there in what we know as Western Turkey today. Now, as he embarked on that second trip, he planned to return to the same area and to branch out even more with the gospel of Christ to the nearby regions. And God was blessing the work as he went on his second journey. Look back at at verse 5 of chapter 16, and you will find there, it says that the Lord blessed and they were encouraged and they were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. So it was a good ministry he was having. Plans were going well. However, as the team turned to go down to the southwest on your map there, if you're looking at one, when they went down to the southwest, the way was blocked. It was forbidden. It was hindered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 of chapter 16. Now, we don't know how the Spirit of God hindered it. We don't know if maybe there were sicknesses or problems or they couldn't get into certain areas or they weren't wearing their mask. We don't know why they could not get in that area. But for some reason, they could not. So Paul decided, rather than going down here, let's go up to the northeast. Let's go up toward Bithynia, which is near the Black Sea. But again, the team watched the door closed by the Spirit of Jesus, verse 7. Obviously, God had a different plan from that that Paul had constructed for his itinerary. From a human standpoint, I mean, you can only imagine if you're trying to reach out, you're, and, you're, and you're seeing blessing, and then you go one place, and it's, whoa, there's a wall there. You go to another place, there's a stoppage there, and you begin to wonder what is going on. And yet, Though Paul was on a mission, really, it was first and foremost God's mission. And so Paul had to wait for God to open the right door at the right time. We all go through times like this. Churches go through times like that, in which we want to do something, and then suddenly it just it's not happening. It's not working. But it's God's church. You are God's people. God is going to watch after you. He is going to direct you just where you need to go. And so you work and you pray and you wait. And so this humble servant of God ends up in a coastal town of Troas that you would see there on your map. And he's in Troas, and it's getting dark. He's lying on a cot. He's staring at the ceiling, and he's wondering, where's all this leading to? God, what are you asking of us? And then drifting off to sleep, Paul has a vision. Look with me in verse 9 that was read. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. By the way, if you look at your map, you will see that across from Troas, across the Aegean Sea, there's a place called Macedonia. It's a, a region. Man of Macedonia was staying there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, there was no hesitation then, only excitement and anticipation as this man, as this, uh, as the men on this team got together, talked about it, and they concluded that this was indeed God's calling and direction in their lives. And so before leaving Troas, Paul wisely secured the services of a new team member. Let me show you how this happens in the narrative. It provides a clue to the identity 
who joins them now. Up to this point in the story, the story's been told in third person. That is, they or them, and just kind of talking uh, about someone else away from them. You see that in verses 6, 7, and 8, words them, they. But then suddenly there's a shift to the first person, we, us, beginning right here in verse 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and so on. Suddenly there's someone else has joined. Who's this we person that comes in? Well, it's the person who's writing the narrative. It is Luke himself who has joined Paul and Silas and Timothy, and he proves to be a great addition to the team, for not only is he a follower of Christ and a physician who could help them with their physical needs on the journey, but it is believed that his home was located in this very area of Macedonia to which they are being called. You see, God's providence and God's working, he's bringing all things together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. So together, these four men and those with them were spearheading an invasion. Now listen, here's the change. To a new continent. As they moved to Macedonia, they were moving to the west, which ultimately winds up with us in the west. But Here's what happens here. As eyewitnesses of these events and writing it down, Luke serves as a frontline reporter recording what's happening in this new venture. And though there are many stories that Luke could have told here, you can only imagine. Luke selects only three stories about the establishment of this church. Is this random? And why these three stories we're about to see? I think the reason will become clear as we read Luke's headlines from the Western Front, which is what I call the sermon today. So we're going to see these three stories and how they apply to us and what God is doing in the world. The first headline would read this. It's in verses 11 through 15. A businesswoman finds true success. A businesswoman finds true success, verses 11 to 15. So the first order of business for Paul and company is to take a boat from Troas, head across the Aegean Sea. And that's just what they do here in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, verse 11. And after spending the night there at Samothrace, which was a, it's a rocky crag that that goes uh, 5,000 feet up in the air, they made for the port of Neapolis on the very next day. That total distance that they traveled there in those two days was 156 miles by ship. But the passage is made quickly. Obviously, the wind is behind their back, and this is God's providence and affirmation of the decision they have made. God is hurrying them along to take the gospel to a new continent. And so from the port of Neapolis, the men pressed some 8 to 10 miles forward and walking on the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, until they reached Philippi, a city with a storied history. Now, walking into the city, this town had been actually named and and, and established back in 356 B.C. by Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Two centuries later, in 167 B.C., the Roman Republic had swallowed up Philippi in its ever-expanding influence. But maybe one of the most famous things up to this point in their history was, and most important to them as citizens, 
that on the site in 42 BC, the forces of Mark Anthony and Octavian, those are the good guys, by the way, met and fought against the enemies, the, the enemies and armies of Brutus and Cassius. Who were the bad guys? Because they had been involved in the assassination of Julius Caesar. And so at this critical encounter, the city of Philippi had wisely chosen to side with Antony and Octavian. And in the aftermath of that victory Brutus and, over Brutus and Cassius, Octavian, whom we better know as Caesar Augustus, they celebrated their good fortune by declaring the city a Roman colony, a great honor itself, and its citizens would not even have to pay provincial taxes. Can you imagine? Now, this sheds a lot of light on the fact that when you read the book of Philippians, you're going to read on a couple of occasions about reminding them where their real citizenship is. It's in heaven. Don't be so proud of your citizenship of where you are as you are your citizenship that you have in heaven. The city itself was ornate and breathtaking. It, it was a little Italy, in effect, in all of its structures and its business. Dr. Luke displays his own civic pride. If you look at verse 12 again, see what he says about his city, because he's from the city. A leading city of the district of Macedonia. We're, we're one of the top cities. And we are a Roman colony. We're Roman citizens. So what's happening is now another colony is about to be established in the city. A colony of the kingdom of God and its citizens. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles up to Philippi and came to the city and made arrangements for his lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of Rome's imperial banner and, the and to change the world's history. This was a world-changing event, just a small thing, you know, to, to some people. Luke's account tells us, verse 12, the latter part, that they remained there some days. So, so they were there in the city getting settled and, and, and looking for ways to share the gospel, and yet apparently there was little or no success initially. And maybe that was due to the fact that there was no synagogue from which Paul could establish his usual platform. He loved to go to the synagogue and there find people who had a foundation in, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament, and from there he could preach Messiah to them. But there's no synagogue here. Jewish custom required that there be at least 10 males in a city before you could have a synagogue, and there wasn't even 10 Jewish men there who could do that. And so they had to find opportunities elsewhere, and strangely enough, the opportunity came on a Sabbath day. Look with me in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there would be was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. So a group of women were, were out having a prayer meeting down by the riverside. And among those gathered, Luke concentrates his storyline on one woman, Lydia. She's quite prominent. In fact, this is a businesswoman who, who was from the city of Thyatira. That's across the Aegean Sea over in the area we know as Turkey. 
And she was a seller of purple goods, verse 14 tells us, a valuable and expensive material worn by nobility and royalty. And while her trade had made her a wealthy woman, there was still something missing inside. She was empty, successful, but empty. Lydia began to hunger for God. Her search for truth drove her to a small group of women who gathered here by the riverside for prayer and worship. She's a God-fearer. She, she knows there's a God, but who is this God? And on this day, this momentous day, she heard Paul speak, and something within her happened. I'm fascinated by something in the book of Acts as we observe the spread of the gospel, because this is the way God works. This is the way the gospel works. It's described in a number of ways. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, listen to what it says there. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So God did something in some people's hearts back in chapter 11. Acts 14, 27, as the... The uh, missionary team comes back and reports to the church in Jerusalem. It says that when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done, not what we have done, but what God has done with them and how he, God, has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The point here in the book of Acts is we need to see is salvation is the work of God from start to finish. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, Ephesians 2 tells us. And so because it all begins and ends with God, all glory is due to God. And so look now what we read about Lydia at Philippi, verse 14, latter part of the verse. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And as the Lord opened her heart, as he worked within her to bring life and give her faith, she responded by faith to the message of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You're not good enough to get into heaven. I'm not good enough to get into heaven. There's not enough good works you you could have to have a, a, a righteous standing before God. We need his righteousness. And that is God's gift to us by faith. Lydia not only opened her heart, though. She opened her home to the missionary team, pleading with them to accept her hospitality, verse 15 tells us. And it was a small beginning now. Lydia, a few women there, but it was a significant step for the seed of the gospel has now been planted in what we know as Europe. Paul would forever treasure these people and the church that was planted there. And as he would write to them, and as we read earlier, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I can imagine it must have been a little bit frustrating for Paul and the team, though, those first few days when there's little or no fruit for their labors, but they stayed faithful, just like all of us in ministry need to do, 
We may not see all the fruit immediately the way we want to, but if we are faithful, then the first spoils of fruit of the battle will come. And now they have it. But on the heels of this success, this businesswoman who found true success, we find a second headline, a second story that Luke wants to share with us about that founding of the church at Philippi. The headline reads, a slave girl discovers a new master. A slave girl discovers a new master. It's verses 16 to 18. Now, if you work your way through the book of Acts, you soon learn that when God works, there's someone else at work. The enemy, Satan, the adversary. He finds a way to hinder God's work from being accomplished. And here in verse 16, this struggle takes on a different look. Paul is moving about the city. He's seeking to share the good news of the gospel, but he, he sense he is being shadowed. In fact, he is being stalked, hounded by a young woman, but not an ordinary girl. Look at verse 16 again. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, some publicists of our day might say, you know, any press is good press. It's good to get your name out there. Name recognition is everything, so that's what it's all about. Just publish enough and, you know, you'll have great success, but is it true that this is good publicity? From all appearances, the girl is telling the truth, right? They are servants of the Most High God. In fact, when Paul writes Philippians 1, he says, he doesn't say Paul, an apostle. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants. So they're servants of the Most High God. And these men do proclaim the way of salvation, right? Wasn't that true? So why not use the girl to their advantage? They could reach a crowd. They wouldn't have to, they wouldn't otherwise have access to the people that she could get to. So why don't we just use her? But Paul was uneasy about this, understandably so. I mean, how would you feel? I, I, I imagine this morning, for instance, if I'm up here and I'm preaching away and somebody stood up, hey, this man's telling the truth. Listen to him. Well, why did you interrupt my message? <laughs> you know? Why are you being a distraction here? But imagine how you would feel. Well, after having put up with being hounded for several days, Paul's patience wore thin. He had to put a stop to this craziness. Verse 18, the latter part of the verse. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. By the way, this is not a life verse for those of you who get annoyed easily. And, and, and you want to uh, get rid of some of your annoyances, you know, hey, I'm just like the Apostle Paul. This is annoying me. I want you to stop. No. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And if you go back to Luke's gospel, remember, Luke wrote Acts, but he also wrote his gospel, Luke. Go back to his gospel, and you'll find that every time Jesus encountered someone who was demon-possessed, and yet acknowledged him as the Son of God, Jesus rebuked them. 
He quieted them. He changed their lives. That's what Jesus did. You can go back to Luke 4, verses 33, 34, and 41 to see that, and Luke chapter 8, verses 27 to 28. But the testimony of of, of demons is not a plus for the Christian faith. The linkage between this demonic girl and the message of Christ was not good. And maybe, just maybe, I, I, I want to be careful with this, but maybe Paul is so upset because of what it says, what Luke actually wrote in the Greek text. It's, here's what it literally reads. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. The word the has been supplied by our translators today, but in the original, the definite article isn't there. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're telling you one way of salvation, but you know there are others. I don't know how much to stake in that, but I will tell you that, that there's a lot of people today who preach that. Oh, yeah, that church is fine, but, you know, our church is fine, too, even though we believe in works or we follow something else or follow some other God, for that matter. Well, immediately, this girl is transformed, the text implying not only her deliverance from the evil spirit, but also that she has now become a follower of Christ. But that didn't sit well with her former employers. So another headline now hits the front page of Acts 16. The headline reads, A Roman jailer finds freedom from his own bondage. Luke uses a clever play on words here that you wouldn't necessarily spot in English translation. Verse 18 ended by saying, And it, that is the evil spirit, came out that very hour. And if you will underline in your mind the words went out, and then look at verse 19, but when the, her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, literally it's went out. Both places, same verb. So it was goodbye demons, but also goodbye cash. They were losing their business. It was hitting them in the pocketbook. And as you can imagine, these businessmen were not happy. And so they take these men down to court. Look with me in verse 19. But when their owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. There's going to be a day in court. We're going to hold you accountable for all of our lost money. These angry men registered their complaints, but their accusations weren't really honest. They stacked the deck, so to speak. They appealed to fear, to prejudice, in order to manipulate a verdict from the judges. Read between the lines of verse 20 at the end and verse 21. Look what happens. These men are Jews. A negative racial reference. These men are Jews. And they're disturbing our city, suggesting we're the insiders, they're outsiders. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so there is ethnic, political, social implications in their accusations. And there's a backstory to this that you must not miss. The Roman emperor at the time was Claudius. Claudius had recently expelled Jews from Rome. You're not welcome here. 
You're not wanted here. In fact, Luke will even record that over in the 18th chapter, verse 2. The anti-Semitism was present in this Roman colony as well then. And so there were emerging tensions here between Romans and Jews. And this may explain why Timothy and Luke were not mentioned as being attacked or dragged, because those two men are Greeks. Now, they're one of us. They're on the inside. We'll let them in. Now, though the charges were false, these words incited the crowd because verse 22 tells us the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. Paul would even remember this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. And the scene gets even worse as the men are arrested. Look at verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, and they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received the order, he, the jailer, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Roman prisons had three sections to them, and the worst, the maximum security areas, dark, damp, chained. That's where he threw them into the prison. With no compassion for their wounds, the jailer simply throws them in there, chains them up. There's good reason for these men now, Paul and Silas, to believe that with morning's light would bring a very dark day, perhaps even their own deaths. In all honesty, put yourself in their sandals. In, in their clothing, sit there. Your back is beaten, lacerated, bleeding. You're licking your wounds. Are you counting your sorrows? Are you questioning the decisions you made? Paul, why did we ever come here? What did you eat on the night you had that vision? I'm not sure this is exactly what God had in mind. But there was none of that. None of that. Instead, it's more like this. Paul says, Silas. This is great. We finally have a captive audience of men. These servants of God do something incredible. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. What a scene. Bludgeoned and bleeding and waiting, who knows what. These men are worshiping God in prayer and praise, and loud enough for all to hear. They keep the prison awake that night. And it's easy to understand their later joy that we're going to see in verse 34. But right now in verse 25, I wouldn't feel the joy. At least I don't think I would. Charles Spurgeon said in one of his sermons, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And so I hope that in the power of God, if I were in that situation, I could sing to the glory of God. Here's what John Stott said, not groans, but songs came from their mouth. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. 
You know, the Greek word for listening there implies that the prisoners were listening intently. Did Paul and the others feel like worshiping? Probably not. They didn't feel, they felt pain inside and they were wondering what tomorrow would bring, maybe frightened to some degree, and yet they were determined to trust God, to give glory to God, to praise God in all things, for all things do work together for good. This is a solemn reminder to all believers that the world is watching most intently when we suffer, when we're going through things that are hard, difficult. And the strength of our faith in the times of troubles often provides a platform for us to share our faith with those around us. Now, this unusual praise service continued from some time. It imply, it's, that's implied in the original language, that it went on and on, much like this sermon, right? Just goes on and on, keeps on giving. Then suddenly God interrupts the service. What? God interrupts the service? Yeah, look at verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And this earthquake rattled everything in sight, including the jailer, verses 26 and 7. Because the doors are open, the fetters are loosed, and in the middle of all this, this jailer wakes up in verse 27, and when he woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That's kind of drastic. A little extreme there, don't you think? Except the code of Justinian, the Roman code, declared that a soldier who allowed his prisoners to escape would pay with his own life. And in fact, back in Acts chapter 12, this is exactly what happened when Peter miraculously escaped from the clutches of the jailers in verse 19, and the jailers were killed. They were executed because they let Peter get away. So this jailer, not wanting to experience humiliation in public execution, is ready to take his own life. And if Paul had been vengeful, he might have wanted to keep quiet in that moment and say, whoa, whatever happens, happens. You know, I'm not in control of this. They threw me in there. They let them do whatever. But no. Not only had Paul and Silas remained in the prison, so had the other prisoners. Something stronger than chains are holding those other prisoners right there in the jail. They wanted to know more about this God, the God who gives songs in the night, the God who could shake the world, the God who could free their souls, not just their bodies. And that's what people need to know today. They need to know there's a real God who cares about them and who offers them the gospel. So verse 28, Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. This was unbelievable. The jailer had to see for himself, and so he called for lights, and he rushed in. He looked around, and sure enough, everybody is still there. All those, we're talking about the, the inner prison. We're talking about maximum security. We're talking about guys on death row, and they're all there. And this rough old jailer trembles at something more terrifying than the threat to his own life from the government. And that is to be in the presence of men who had something to die for. We're going to stay here. And so he asked the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sadly, in our culture today, that's not a question being asked much because 
people in our world don't think they need to be saved from anything. But the gospel tells us that we're sinners. The gospel tells us that we're under the wrath of God. But we are saved from God by God himself who loves sinners. What a profound question. What must I do to be saved? Here's the profound answer, or the simple answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Trust, rest, put all your hope in him because of his death and resurrection that gives you life and frees you from your sin. Luke then tells us that he further explains salvation to them, verse 32, that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Here, here is the congregation expanding here. Look at verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Man had responded by faith, believing in Christ in that very night. Verse 33 tells us he was baptized. And the sailor took, the sailor, the jailer, took them into their house, fed them, and rejoiced. I love that. Verse 3. Man, I'm saved. I'm going to rejoice in that. Maybe this is why Paul, in writing them some 10 years later in the letter of Philippians, over and over mentions joy and rejoicing. They'd seen it in Paul, and he challenges them to do the same. Well, they're still incarcerated. They're still in the jailer's care, and with the coming of dawn, the decision came from City Hall. They decided to release Paul and Silas. They thought it over. Evidence had been minimal, beating and a night in jail. That should be sufficient to teach these guys a lesson to shut up and keep to themselves. Word was sent to the jailer to let them go. The jailer was glad about that, verse 36. The magistrates, he comes to Paul and says, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come on out, go in peace. Hey, it's all over. Paul says, no, hold on. They have beaten us publicly, verse 37, uncondemned. Men who are, here comes the magic words, Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Note that reference to Roman citizens. They were afraid when they heard that, verse 38 tells us, because it was unlawful to beat a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen never received a beating. Anyone who does that would face severe judgment. And so they came and apologized to them, verse 39, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. We'll, We'll clear you, but get out of here. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul say, no, I'm not leaving? They're going to come and bring us out of here. Was he looking for revenge? Was he looking to make them look bad? No, he was looking to give a good name to the gospel and for this church to be established upon legal ground. I mean, imagine the buzz in the city. Hey, those guys who are preaching. The magistrates came and apologized. The magistrates did wrong. These guys did nothing wrong. I wonder why they got there in the first place. Tell me about what they were saying. 
opportunities to share the gospel multiply. And having left the prison, verse 40 tells us that Paul and Silas met with the believers and encouraged them before departing. And remaining behind was one of the team members who would nurture the flock, and that was Luke. Because notice verse 40, they, he goes back. So Luke stays right there to minister to that congregation. Okay, we're almost done. And all God's people said, no, no, don't, no, no, don't, don't do that to me. Almost done. Because now I've got to draw this together and show you the why. I'll do that quickly. Three great headlines, three compelling stories. But why these three? Luke has carefully crafted this section under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And I want you to think carefully and take in the bigger picture of God's work in establishing that church, this church, any church. Paul the missionary had once been Saul the Pharisee, as you well know. And in writing to the church at Philippi, a decade after these events, he gave a brief sketch of his former life. It's in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to this, verse 4 and 5. If anyone thinks that he has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, so as to the law, a Pharisee. He had religion, but he didn't have a relationship with a living God through Jesus Christ. As a devout Pharisee, which he says he was, he would have prayed according to his traditions. And one of the daily prayers for a Pharisee was this. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. That was a daily prayer. Now, take a look at the first European church. Paul, the former Pharisee, he's seen the conversion of a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Boy, can God turn things inside out? But I want you to notice also something more. Notice that you don't only have a woman, a slave, and a Gentile, but you have someone who is rich, someone who is poor, and someone of the working class. Is there a purpose in this? Yeah, I think there is a subtle but very clear message. The gospel is for any and everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. There's neither Jew nor Greek in the gospel. Neither bond nor free. Paul would write Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. See, all you need to secure a place and a citizenship in the kingdom of God is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something else also here. Luke shows us that the gospel unites all of those who come to Christ. The membership of the church at Philippi was composed of a dynamic sales lady, a former demon-possessed slave girl, a roughneck jailer who bordered on a suicidal fashion, and some ex-inmates. That's your core group. I want to ask for testimonies this morning of who all is here. But this is their core. And though diverse in background and social standing, they are one in Christ. This is why he goes back, Paul and them, they go back out of prison, visit Lydia, and when they had seen the slave, the jailer, the brothers, the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them. The church had become family. 
a band of brothers and sisters. And Paul is going to highlight their union with Christ and with one another in his letter to the Philippians. This is one of the pressure points of Philippians, the unity of striving together for the gospel. Here's the deal for us today, just as it was for the church at Philippi. We have believed in Christ, and therefore we rejoice in our faith, verse 34. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. We're going to hear that echoing. We have tasted of grace, and therefore we stand firm and share the good news of the gospel. This is chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. He will remind them when it stand firm in the faith. We have been joined together and therefore encourage one another. Be of one mind, even the mind of Christ. So from the very start, Paul will take that history and he will camp on that. And over and over he will say, as citizens of heaven, live worthy of the gospel to which you are called. I want to close with this quote from Jason Meyer. Philippians burns with a blazing certainty of the gospel of Christ. The gospel provides a strong sense of coherence and unity to the whole letter. Paul's opening greeting celebrates the identity that he and the Philippians share through the gospel, verses 1 and 2. His prayer of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8, highlight their partnership in the gospel as God has made them both partakers of grace. And Paul's prayer of intercession boldly asks for greater gospel fruit to abound in their lives, verses 9 through 11. That's where we're headed next week and the following weeks. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father, we thank you that as we come together as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, we realize that you are the one who has redeemed us by your grace, that we share in that common grace. We offer you our thanks today that you have called us together into fellowship and partnership in the gospel. Help this church to stand firm in that grace and in that gospel. And Father, I pray for them just as Paul is going to pray for the Philippians in that letter. That your fruit will abound. That your righteousness would reign in their hearts so that they might live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for the word of God to us this morning. May it serve your people well to strengthen and encourage their hearts. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Today we'll not be celebrating the Lord's table. I think that will follow next week. But for this morning together to stand firm in the gospel, let's all stand and take your bulletin and please look on page four as we confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remain standing. Remain standing as we conclude our service with praise to God. Turn your bulletins to number 146.
Oh, the righteousness, dear. 